0: Love Talk Radio.
1: And here we go again, Marcia. Go ahead and start. OK.
0: Good evening. This is TS Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice," brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. They provide us a forum to warn others about the reality of hospice as well as many other topics that you need to be aware of and you may not. Thank you for joining us this evening and it is our hope that you will garner information that will help you with your grief or answer questions and most certainly help you protect yourself and others in the future. Please share our links. This week, a heartbroken member of Voices for Seniors just lost her grandmother and started her post by apologizing for it being long as she told what happened, morphine involved, of course, and she asked what she could do now to seek answers. She didn't have a need to apologize, and I as well as many other members stated that, but we are made to believe we are blowing things out of proportion, and why don't we just accept that they're gone? We won't. I feel like we have to defend our position on why we believe our loved ones were euthanized or their death was hastened or, in fact, they were murdered. So the best word that I could find to describe this was apologetics, which is used in defending one's position in religion, but it applies here. We have to explain our conviction on why we know what happened as we witnessed it and that it shouldn't be happening, but it falls on deaf ears except for those of us who have experienced it. So we're preaching to the choir, as they say. But the fact is, you have every right to protect your loved ones, and you don't have to make an apology. You need to tell your story, you need to be heard, and you need to ask questions. Do not let the medical community and naysayers steal your voice. And not all hospices are bad, and not all of them hasten death but many of them do. And not all nurses are guilty of the crime of euthanizing, but many are, knowingly or unknowingly. The result is the same. For me, I became an elder advocate when my mom was cruelly murdered in Georgia under the guise of hospice compassionate care. Many said, she was 87. She was in hospice. What did you expect? It's what happens. That was not something I was willing to do or able to accept, and then I found out it was happening around the globe. My journey had begun. To those nurses, she was just another elderly person in a bed withering away, with their help, of course, and to them it was for her own good. No names, no faces, just another day in, another cold body out, and another day would begin, but not for her. (coughs) On Friday, February the 5th, Marty and Kaz let me join their TS radio program, In the Mix, where we discussed serial killers and angels of mercy, and we talked about these nurses who kill patients with no remorse. If you'd like more information, please check out that show. Hospice was created to minimize pain of the actively dying who could no longer be treated with medicine or procedures such as end-stage cancer or liver disease. But today, almost anything will get you enrolled. Hospice was never intended to drug someone into unconsciousness and hasten their death with drugs, starvation, and dehydration. But that is what's happening. It's a huge money-making conglomerate. And I'll discuss that in a later show. But tonight... I want to concentrate on our guest story and the drugs being used to kill our loved ones so that you become familiar with their names and their side effects so you will not be duped, as many of us are. After your loved one is enrolled, often they will take a rapid decline, and you'll ask what happened. They were fine the day before. And you may either be given a brochure that describes the dying symptoms Or they may just say to you, your loved one is now dying. And because they are exhibiting these symptoms, you believe it's true. Ah, So they have your attention and it will be easier for them to give more medication to combat the signs that you're seeing. They cause these side effects from the drugs that you or your loved one did not consent to. And I'm going to talk about those drugs that they're being given and what the side effects are. But before I go further, let me give you a scenario. A person has cancer, they are in pain, and there is no hope for their future. They're miserable, they're not living a good life, and they don't want to continue this way. That, to me, is the person who should be enrolled into hospice if they choose to. Then a nurse or a doctor, if you ever see the doctor, Honestly discuss the plan and what effects the drugs will have on them. The patient says, yes, that's what I want. They're aware that when they start the drugs they will not be able to communicate with their family and that the drugs will hasten their death. They sign a consent form, and the nurse gives them a minimal dose to combat the pain and only as needed. That's what hospice is supposed to do. Eventually, the patient passes with their family around. They knew everything that was going to happen. That is the only reason hospice should be involved or give morphine to a patient. And I'm not medical, but I have seen the destruction of my mom, and I have heard and talked to hundreds of other people. Our loved ones are being euthanized, premeditated, condoned murder. So how about those drugs? Hospice uses a one-size-fits-all, as you will see. I was recently provided an official copy of a list of drugs and the instructions that are given to families when they are in in in-home hospice care. It's called a comfort kit. Now, keep in mind, these drugs are given to the families told to put in the refrigerator with the instruction sheets and are told, okay, if your loved one starts exhibiting these signs, then go get your kit that's in the refrigerator at that time if your loved one is exhibiting signs of pain or any other sign you go to the refrigerator you get that out you have not checked to see what those drugs will do you were too emotional you were sleep deprived exhausted and you're afraid of losing your loved one you don't know what to do it states to call the hospice if your loved one experiences symptoms as they list but what happens if nobody answers the phone That happens often. So you start administering these drugs as you have been directed to do either with a nurse on the other line or just reading the directions. But at what cost when you administer these drugs? What will really happen? What I am about to tell you should scare the hell out of everyone. If you don't have serious doubts about the honesty of hospice after this, I don't know what I could say to convince you of the dangers. I will refer to each of these drugs by the name they refer to it and its alternate name so that you will become familiar with these drugs. We were not. The typical drug used is morphine. It's also called Roxanol. Halperidol, which is called Haldol. Lorazepam, which is called Ativan. And it's interesting For all of the symptoms, it starts with giving two doses of morphine, and I'll explain that to you. For the morphine, also called Roxanol, hospice indicates it's for shortness of breath, pain, or coughing. That was a new one to me. Halperidol, also called Haldol, is, they say, for restlessness, confusion, and nausea. Lorazepam also called Ativan, they say it's to help relieve restlessness, anxiety, and nausea. So if your loved one is experiencing shortness of breath, here are the instructions. Give 0.3 milliliters of morphine and another dose 30 minutes later if they're still having difficulty breathing. If after 60 minutes, give them a dose of lorazepam same as Ativan. If they are in pain, give them a dose of morphine and a second dose 30 minutes later. And if they're still in pain, call hospice. If the patient is anxious, agitated, or restless, give them morphine. If they're still anxious 30 minutes later, give them more morphine. If they're anxious 60 minutes later, give them halperidol. If 90 minutes later, give them lorazepam. So now you've just given them a double dose of morphine, one dose of Haldol, and one dose of Ativan. Can you imagine what you just did to them within three hours? Hang on, and I'll tell you the side effects from what was just done to them. For those aware, this is called a ham sandwich which is often joked about by hospice nurses on many Facebook groups to shut a patient up or to threaten them if they don't quieten down. HAM, H-A-M, Haldol, Ativan, and morphine. Remember these drugs. While they laugh about it and make jokes about it, it is not funny. It is our loved one's life, and it is a typical toxic cocktail that will murder your loved one or you. So what are these drugs really supposed to be used for and what are some side effects to put this into real discussion on the dangers and seeing through their lives and their motive? And I know that I'm going to sound like I'm talking in circles because I am, but that's the fact is they are talking in circles, smoke and mirrors. Morphine, same as Roxanol, is used to treat severe pain, It is an opioid, and it works in the brain to change how your body feels and responds to pain. It doesn't say it's for breathing or coughing, as they say. I have heard that it will help with breathing if you give them a minimal dose, but Wikipedia and the information that I read doesn't say it's for that. Some side effects of morphine are restlessness, anxiety, agitation, and nausea. There are other side effects as vomiting, constipation, drowsiness, dizziness, confusion, and hallucinations that your loved one may experience, and they will tell you it's because they're dying. Serious side effects as slow breathing may be increased if you take it with other drugs such as lorazepam. An overdose may include slow, shallow breathing, slow heartbeat, or coma. But didn't I just say that they said the drug is to be given to your loved one if they have breathing issues? And this drug causes agitation, which then they treat with lorazepam or Ativan and Haldol, which there is a warning against doing that. But if you're in hospice, it doesn't matter because their intent is to hasten your death. So it's okay to use that. Halperidol, same as Haldol, they say it's used for restlessness, confusion, or nausea. And as I stated above, if the person is exhibiting restlessness or confusion or nausea, they are to be given two doses of morphine and then Haldol. But the truth is far from what they say. Haldol is an antipsychotic drug used to treat disorders like schizophrenia and Tourette syndrome. Do our loved ones have this? No, again, they lie. Some side effects which they say it is to treat, it causes anxiety and restlessness. It has other side effects that I mentioned before on the morphine, drowsiness, headache, diarrhea, but the main point is they say to use it to treat, and it makes the patient worse. How is it compassionate? There is a warning about using it in older adults with dementia because of increased chances of death, but it is often given to dementia patients. Can you see the pattern that I'm trying to point out with their drugs? Lorazepam, Ativan, they say it's to treat restlessness, anxiety, or nausea, that's partly correct, it is for anxiety, if the patient is anxious. But I suspect you just caused them to be anxious because you just gave them morphine, and morphine causes anxiousness. Some other side effects of lorazepam are the same thing with halperidol, drowsiness, dizziness, insomnia, constipation, vomiting. This is what we're doing to our loved ones. And there is a warning about taking it with other narcotics, which is morphine, or another anti-anxiety medication, which they're saying is Haldol. It tells you don't do this. I just referred to the directions where they give them morphine, Ativan, and Haldol together for being anxious, agitated, or restless. And it specifically says do not do this. It is a vicious cycle. And most of the guests that I have talked to, their loved ones were not in pain and they were not anxious until they realized what was happening and they wanted to leave. They were euthanized with morphine, Ativan, and Haldol and died from the drugs, dehydration, and starvation. And remember, my mom and most of my guests, other loved ones, were not dying when they started drugging them. Remember this. If you gave a young, healthy person the drugs our loved ones were given in the amount, combination, timing, and duration, that person would die, but not from the drugs, not from a disease, but from these drugs, dehydration and starvation. It is condoned, premeditated murder. An excellent website for a list of the drugs that I just talked about and other drugs and other important information, as in a medical power of attorney, is halovoice.org. That's H-A-L-O, voice, altogether.org .org. They also have a phone number if you have a question or you want to talk about putting your loved one in or if your loved one is in and you want to get them out. Their number is 888 888- Two two one four two five six, or if you're better with letters, that's eight 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 two two one. Halo, H A L O. Another good reference is a book written by hospice respiratory therapist Michelle Young Dewers, who is a warrior standing for humanity. She witnessed many events and wrote a book about it called Killing for Profit. The dark side of hospice. It exposes what hospice is about, about their quotas, and it is more than the death culture. I encourage you to read it. It's a very informative book as Michelle shares real life stories and what she encountered. There is a group in Facebook and MeWe titled Murdered by Hospice, which has many members who experience this horror and are very supportive of others. Our guest, Kathy Varner, is also a member. If something seems off, trust your instincts and get your loved one out. Stop them from drugging them. Better yet, do not let them start drugging them. Become familiar with these drugs. Call for help. You have more control than you may think. Exercise it and bring back up if you need to. But the first thing is to educate yourself and that's where we come in. Tonight, our guest is Kathy Varner, who will share the story of her dad, William Sherbert, age 83, who died on January the 14th, 2012. Kathy wasn't able to protect him because she didn't know about the warning signs. Years later, she would have to face this again with her mom, Mary Sherbert, age 87, who passed on November the 21st, 2019. But this time, Kathy was armed and knew what was happening. Keep in mind as you listen, that because of her knowledge, she was able to protect and defend her mom, and when the plan, or some action didn't set well with her, she opposed it, revoked hospice, fired them, hired different hospices to ensure that her mom had the best care. So Kathy, I'd like to invite you to tell us about your parents, tell us a story of what happened, and how you unapologetically protected your mama.
1: Okay, um, do you want me to start with what they did to my daddy?
0: I do, please.
1: Okay. Um, back in 2011, he was diagnosed with colon cancer, and he was referred to hospice, and the hospice doctor gave him six months to live. At the time, we did not know that, Um they gave him hospice, and hospice started coming out there, and they had a CNA that would give him a bath, and a nurse would come once a week, and everything seemed to be okay. I was not staying with him at the time, but I only lived two, two houses down, and I would go up there, and I mean, I was up there daily, and, and he just kept getting sicker and sicker. And I finally I asked the hospice nurse, I, I said, what's going on? she just said, he's getting weaker. Two or three weeks went by, and I would ask her the same question, and she would answer, he's getting weaker. And finally, I said, I know he's getting weaker, but why? Because the doctor said, you know, that that he wasn't really, he wasn't dying. he He would live, you know, a pretty good while with what he had. So she said, I think we need to talk. I said, I think we do. So she sat me and my husband down at the table, and she said, do you know what your daddy's diagnosis is? I said, I know he has cancer. I said, but the doctor said it wouldn't kill him, you know. And and she said, well, what they told us, the doctor, is fourth-stage colon cancer with six months to live. And I said, well, he did not tell us that. She said, well, sometimes they just leave it up to us to tell, tell the family. And I said, Really? So I was not happy at all because she was really rude to me the whole time. So I called another hospice. They were coming in later that afternoon, but I had to act like everything was okay with this lady. So when the other hospice got there, everything went okay. They were taking care of him. And they gave him pain medicine. When they first, I mean, when they first came, they brought the comfort kit, the death kit, and they told me to put it in the refrigerator and to disguise it because if people found out we had those drugs in the house, you know, people will kill you for them. So I wrapped it up. It was like um, close to Christmas, and I wrapped it up in, in tin foil and put it on a plate and like it was a wrapped up cake in the refrigerator so it stayed in there and um one day i woke up i only slept about two or three hours a day i woke up and i had a really bad sore throat and i had this girl sitting with me that helped me out four hours a day and my mother was there and i told i woke up i had a fever and i walked to my daddy's door and i told him i said daddy i'm sick today i said but she's gonna come in here and help you I didn't want to get him any sicker. But I was sitting right in the next room with the door open and she went in there and, and, you know, washed his face off and everything and got him what he needed to drink. And she came back and sat down with me and he made a noise and it was kind of like a cough, but not, it was just kind of a weird noise. And I said, go check on him. I don't know what that noise is. And, about the same time, the CNA knocked on the door to give him a bath. So by the time I could even think, because like I said, I was sick, here comes three or four more hospice people. And they called it crisis care. Now, now, now my daddy was sitting up talking. He couldn't walk. But he hadn't walked in months. Um... Something just, it, it just happened really fast. I mean, it was like, boom, everybody was there. Me and my husband walked in the bedroom in the back of the house. And when we walked by, it was probably gone 30 minutes. I was just letting them do whatever because I didn't understand what crisis there was. I walked back in there, and the whole house was full. It was full of hospice workers and neighbors. And, I mean, these were people that I hadn't seen in months. And I was like... What are all these people doing here? Why are they here? And the hospice lady came in there, and she said, "Uh, we're going to start him on morphine. I said, no, 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 no. Because I did know a little bit about morphine, and I had always heard bad things. I said, no, he don't need morphine. I mean, he was just sitting there looking at me like, you know, just normal. His eyes were bright. And I said, no. Well, my niece walked up to me, and she said, My mama said, oh, yes, we're giving him the morphine. And I said, no, we're not. And my niece walked up to me. She was a caregiver. She took care of this couple of ladies. And she said, go ahead and let him give it to him because it'll help him breathe. And me not thinking, you know, trusting her when she didn't know what she was talking about, really. I said, okay, you can give it to him, but you have to give him the, the smallest dose possible. I said, because he's not in he's not in anything. And they agreed to that, and then the hospice lady came in there, and she said, I told her, I said, me and my husband's discussed, you know, something happened to him. My husband was certified in CPR. I said, he said he would do CPR on him. She said, oh, no, you don't need to do that. And I just looked at her, and she said, you don't want me to do it because I would break all his ribs. I said, I don't think so. Well, that did it with me right there. I was just, didn't want to talk to her anymore. So they gave him a dose of morphine. And for three days, they had round the clock care. A nurse was there 24-7. He never spoke another word. He never opened his eyes again. And on the last day, um, it was... Maybe an hour before he died, this nurse came in, and she, she said, he's dying. And I said, okay. And she looked at me. She said, when, when it starts getting closer, she said, he'll start doing what we call guppy breathing. And I looked it up, and it's like a guppy fish, how they, like, pucker their lips and start, like, they're gasping for air. You ever look at a picture of a guppy? That's exactly what my daddy looked like. And in your mind you're not thinking, okay, when they start that breathing, you know, they're gonna they're gonna still be here for a while. You don't think um that's not the case. So they not only know they have the Ativan, the how doll and the morphine all in the comfort kit. Um, but he only got the morphine. They know exactly how They're going to die. They know what they're going to do. So to me, you know, that that, that says it all. The morphine does it. Because everybody wouldn't start guppy breathing. I mean, that don't make any sense to me. So my daddy started doing it. And I was sitting, I was holding his hand. And me and my mother were sitting in chairs by his bed. My husband was standing behind me. And when he started doing that guppy breathing, I just turned my head around and buried my face in my husband's shirt. Because I couldn't stand to see it.
0: Mhm.
1: It only lasted, I mean, maybe two minutes. And I heard the nurse say, he's gone. And and my, my it was just instinct. My husband always helped her do everything. I screamed. I said, help him. And she told me to shut up. And then she said, He's gone again. So my daddy died. He he the morphine killed him. Because he never opened his eyes after after the first dose and he had been we had a hard time getting him to go to sleep, you know? And mm-hmm. it just it really it done him in. It it just killed him. So I said from well, then had- on I said... Go ahead. He,
0: he had been eating and drinking up to that point and sitting up, and he did not say he was in pain.
1: Right. Um, he did have a bed sore on his, on his tailbone, and he had one on the heel of his foot. That is the only thing that he complained that hurt. Mm-hmm. And they gave him hydrocodone for pain. Um, I would literally have to make him take one, because I could tell, you know, when it's your parents, you just know, and I would just, you know, I would say, Daddy, you really need to take this, and it would be when he had been up, you know, for 24 hours, and I, because I knew it would help him sleep, and I'd say, just take one, I mean, and, and and one pill every couple of days, you know, is all he would
0: take, Right.
1: because of those but sores, they... and what many to do with cancer,
0: But they had already decided what his fate was and and how long it was going to be. Um, Tell me about about the nurse and the clothes.
1: Oh, um,
0: wow, that's a hard one.
1: Um, The night before, the day before he died, they have these different nurses, so you never know who's going to come. But I really liked her. And she looked at me the day before he died, it was in January. She said, Um, you need to get him some clothes ready. And I said, For what? She said, Because, um, he's gonna need clothes a change of clothes to wear to the funeral home. And I just looked at her and, and I started just getting clothes up and I was thinking, you know, this is warm, it's cold outside. I got him worn pajamas. I'm sorry. And Take she went on to say that, um, she said, now, now, when he passes, she said, um, we'll clean him up and give him a bath and everything. And we'll put these clothes on him. She said, and the funeral home will come in. She said, and they'll they'll pick him up. They'll put him in a bag
0: in a body bag.
1: In a bag, yeah. She just said a bag. Mm-hmm. When I came to myself, I was in the kitchen. Uh, that's three rooms away from his bed.
0: Screaming, they're going to put my daddy in a bag. And at and this my time said, your, At this time your dad was still Alive, and he could still hear, and I've been often told that they the hearing is the last to go. So he could have yeah, heard her. Yeah, they would tell me that. Right, and so he could have heard her and pick out his funeral, the clothes for him to go to the funeral, and we're going to have bring a body bag, and he could hear that. Those are the type of things that Michelle, in her book, Killing for Profit, talks about the way that the people are treated. You're not treated humanely like your life matters. And this is another instance of the cruelty. There is no compassion there. No, no. I'm I'm just sorry. And tell them what the certificate said. It said he died from um,
1: COPD, heart failure. Not
0: not cancer. Not cancer,
1: no. Mm -hmm. Cancer was nowhere on his death certificate.
0: Right. So All and right. I, I'm so sorry that that you lost that battle with your dad, but you didn't know.
1: No, I didn't. I thought I was doing the right thing.
0: Right, right.
1: But I was determined I, I told I have C O P D and I told my husband don't ever let those them people near me. Um and my mother looked at me one day and she said, Don't don't let don't ever let hostage kill me. And I said, honey, that's one promise I will keep. And at the time all this was going on, my mother was doing some very strange things, but I just thought it was because of what was going on. Um, When my daddy died, we brought her here to live with us and realized that she had dementia. She woke up one day, and she started talking, and it lasted for three straight days. She never came up for air. I mean, she never closed her eyes. She talked like a radio. And I told my husband, I said, we've got to get her some help, or she's not going to live, because she already had a pacemaker, and she was, she was older and, you know, not in really good health. So... I took her to the emergency room, and they wanted to put her in a, a behavioral center right then, and I told them, no. I said she don't have dementia. I said my daddy died, she's just been she's lost her home, she's lost everything. She's had to move in with me, plus my sister had died. And I said, she's just been through a lot. It's not dementia. she's just having a hard time. So I bring her back home, and it didn't stop. So I had do eventually after after you know a couple more days. I had to take her to a behavioral center myself. I said, I can't do this. I don't know how to help her. So they kept her, but when I was talking to the doctor, she said, "Um, I recommend hospice. When she leaves here, she has dementia. I said, well, how long can she live like this? She said, maybe one year. And I said, okay. And I believe that. Well, while she was in there something happened to her her eye got busted wide open the bone was broke up on her cheek god so jerked her out of there too but thank god they had gave her this medication called rimeron she took it at night it helped her sleep and it got her mind back to concentrating so she started you know when she come home she was you know sleeping and she was Back more to herself. But I still believe that I had, you know, they told me to get hospice, and that's what they were, you know, told her doctors. So they set hospice up, and I went through four years of hospice with my mother. I went through about seven different hospice companies, and that's what they are. They're a business, they're nothing more, nothing less. They're companies. So the first one that came out here, I had only dealt with one, so I didn't know what to expect. They came for a few weeks, and I don't know all the time frames of all this because I can look back now and still feel like it was just a big bad dream, but the first company that came out here, they they, they are super nice to you, and everybody thinks, oh, they're angels. No, they're not, but anyway they would come out here and they would bring her a dozen roses like once a week. Just lavish her, you know, and just be so sweet to her. And I thought this, this CNA was just great. So I walked in there one day while she was giving her a bath. Now my mother, you had a lot of problems using the bathroom. And I would have to use depository and put diapers on her for her to go to the bathroom. So I would do it during the day, but, you know, at night, after I'd done that, a lot of times she would go in her diaper. And she wasn't in diapers 24-7. It was just on the days I used the suppository. Mm -hmm. Um, I walked in there, and the CNA was giving her a bath after she had had a suppository, so she was pretty messy. And she washed her rear end and then took the same washcloth, and was headed for her face, and I said, no, stop. You're not going to wash my mother's face with what you just washed her rear end with. That is nasty. I said, you can go, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but we have several hospice companies here in this small town where I live, so I called another one, and I told them what happened. Uh, They know exactly what to do. They said you need to you need to fire these people. They said, but don't don't call them and tell them they're fired. They said we need to do a transfer. Mm-hmm. Something you if they drop her, if they knew that I was looking for another option, they will drop you, and somehow it interferes with Medicare when they see a, right. a gap. Mm-hmm. so they tell you don't drop them. You know, let us do a transfer. Okay, we can do that. So that the head of that hospice came, and they are real rude when they do this they went here you need to sign this paper and you have to make sure it's a transfer because it looks bad on Medicare and you could lose hospice altogether because um, they can put anything down if you just try you know let them drop them. So it was just a transfer so I transferred her to another hospice. And they were really good. They brought the comfort for jet, which I, I'd i look at them and I'd say, I'm never going to use that. Let's just get this straight. This is never going to be used. You can leave it here if you want to, but it's not going to be used on my mother. I said, They'd, I said, they've already killed my daddy with this stuff. They're not going to kill my mother. So this company came for several months. We loved the CNA. My mother loved her. They would sing, she would sing to my mother. My mother loved country music. I mean, they form bonds with patients, and you think they care. You really believe they care, and I think they believe it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few things happened. One day, uh, she brought she would bring these, like, cuticle, little wooden cuticle things to do her fingernails and to clean out from under them. She handed me a handful of them, and I got up at like 3 o'clock in the morning every morning because that's when my mother woke up. You get on their schedule, and I did she didn't come till about 8, and usually by that time, I was already exhausted. She handed them to me. I put them in my nightstand, and I forgot about them. So about a week later, she walked, and she said, what did you do with those things? I need to clean her fingernails out. I said, I don't even remember what I've done with them. So I was sitting here, and she came in there. She said, I found them. They were in your nightstand. So she not only went into my bedroom, she went into my nightstand. My husband don't even do that. Mm-hmm. And got those things out. But I let it slide because my mother loved her. She was happy with me. So then me and my husband didn't go out much. They had a new nurse. That bed came out and introduced to us, but she had only been out here one time. And on that particular day, I had a brand new sitter sitting with my mother so me and my husband could go out grocery shopping. When I I left, and I didn't even know she was coming because I like to be here when the nurses came. When I got back, the sitter said, The nurse came while you were gone. She went in your mama's bedroom. And went through her drawers looking for her medicine. She said, but she couldn't find it. I said, she did what? And she said, yeah, she went through the drawers in there. And I said, no. Because not only did I not know this nurse, she shouldn't have went in my mother's bedroom anyway. My mother was sitting in the den with the sitter. So she's through her bedroom. Right. The city was new. I mean, if something had got gone, I wouldn't have knew which one to even think about. Done it. So I didn't like that. Well, it wasn't, but about a week later, um, they would get my mother. They would come early in the morning, and they would take my mother to the bathroom and give her a bath. She wouldn't get in the shower. That's just the thing with dementia. But they would wash her off, and then they would bring her in here to the den, and she would sit on the couch and cover her all day. Well, I had noticed my mother had a black mark on her on the side, the side of her nose, kind of under her eye. And it, it happened a couple of times, and I, I looked at the CNA, and I said, I don't know where those marks are coming from under her eyes. It, it looked like a black eye. I said, but I only beat her on Saturday. I was just joking and kidding around, and she laughed, and, you know, and, she took Mama on into the bathroom. As soon as that door opened, my Mama come through and she said, "Kathy, she's questioning me about what happened to my eye." I said, "Oh, you are." I said, "I promise you, I only beat her on Saturdays," and I laughed, but it, was, it wasn't a joke to me because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. But that really made me mad. She was questioning my mother. Esther, did we do something to her? And I said, uh, Mama, I said, we can't have people like that coming in here. I said, you know, one little thing could get you jerked out of here, and I would never see you again. I said, we can't do this. So here goes another hostess. I called another company and told them what was going on. They do the same thing. Makes sure, okay. We'll do a transfer. Don't let them drop her. I said okay. So three of them showed up at my door, mad. Just they are so rude when you when you don't want them back. You need to sign these papers. I said okay. So the new one starts coming, and they came for a while. And one 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 day the CNA was on vacation, the normal one, and they sent one from out of town. And I was telling her, I said, um, they were kind of accusing me, sort of questioning Mama about what happened to her eye. She said, oh, honey, where do you get her glasses at? I said, the Dollar Tree. And she said, that uh, ink comes off on, on their faces. She said, and it'll look like a black eye. So it was coming from her glasses. hmm So we, we kept them... For a while, for a pretty good while, and they had this nurse. She she was a retired nurse. She was really too old to even be working. I think she just didn't like to have to drive here. She had a job like thirty miles, and my mama was her only patient here. She um, decided that they were going to drop my mother from hospice because my mother, after they gave her, started giving her that rim run, and I told you she could concentrate a lot more. Um, she colored all day. She went through... She would do a whole coloring book in two days. I spent $100 a month on coloring books. So that's what she did. She colored. And this nurse decided, because she could color in the lines, that she was not hospice material. She wasn't dying fast enough. And they brought the comfort kit, too, by the way. And... Then they got palliative care, and the, the doctor came a few times with palliative care. She said, she is hospice material. So she turned her back over to hospice, and I said, well, I don't want that company back. If they're going to come in here and drop her that quick, because at this point, my mother, she had Lewy body dementia. She couldn't walk, and taking her back and forth to a doctor's office wouldn't have been wouldn't have been good at all, I mean, it was just she couldn't have done it, so I decided to go with the same company. I hear I heard that they had total different employees that my daddy had because a friend of mine, her mother had them she said that they were really good she said they they have done a complete turnaround, so I called them and they came out. And it was a good friend of mine that I went to school with and worked with. And the first thing, when we sat down, you know, they have their liaisons to come out and to talk you into hospice. They have people for everything. What she did, I mean, she basically told me she just went out and looked for business. They go to nursing homes and all this looking for somebody to sign up. So when she came, she, I said, "No, I'm going to tell you this. I said, before we sign up, I said, you have to, they, she said, you have to sign a DNR, a do not resuscitate order, which the other ones made me sign that too. And I said, I have to sign that? And she said, yes. I said, okay. So the DNR was signed and she. I said, no, I will not have morphine brought back in here. She said, oh, no, we don't use morphine anymore. We use Roxanol. Hmm. Not knowing that I knew what she was talking about, I said, "Well, that's just a more concentrated version of morphine." She said, "I didn't know that." They don't even know what they're talking about. The ones that come out and sign people up, they don't know what they're saying. I said,
0: "Yeah, that's why." What you just said is exactly why when I talk about the drugs that I use both names because they did that in my mom's records. It's alternately, it was morphine, sometimes it was roxanol. And if you don't know that that is the same drug, it has the same effects, it's just a different exactly. form of it, you have to know the different terminology. And, you know, we don't know that because we're not in the medical field. So very good point, Kathy. Thank you.
1: Yeah, they try, and, and And I think morphine got such a bad name, that's why they did that. Um, so I went with the company that my daddy had, I knew a lot of the employees, and they came for a long time, I mean, almost, almost, uh, probably close to two years, but we had problems, okay, one day my mother had a sitter coming, and the sitter was sick, had been out sick. And I told her, don't come back until you're completely well, because my mother can't afford to get sick, and I can't either. And because when you're a caregiver, you're, you are totally wore out. Your immune system is gone.
0: I know. Trust me. Yes.
1: So the, the lady was out for about a week, and she wanted to come back, and she was still coughing some. And I said, are you sure you're okay? And she said, yes. Yeah. So she came back. Sure enough, about three or four days later, my mama started coughing. So it was on a Sunday. I called the nurse. You have to call the weekend nurses. And one came out, and, and it was my ex-sister-in-law. I didn't even know she worked with them, because the weekend workers are different from the ones you see during the week. And she said, Kathy, she said, she's just got a really bad cold. And she called the doctor, and they called her in Mucinex. And an antibiotic. And I was thinking the same thing. You know, she just had what the sitter had. So we all went to bed that night. She had been coughing all day. The mucinex was helping her, so I fell asleep. And my bedroom was right next to her. And she woke me up about 2 o'clock that morning. And I went in there, and she was in a hospital bed. She had both of her hands on both rails trying to get up and I said mommy she said I want to sit in the chair because she had dementia and a lot of times a dementia patient can't tell you what's wrong with them and that was one time my mother couldn't she couldn't tell me that she couldn't breathe she would just tell me she wanted to sit up she wanted to get up and watch TV and I said mama I said you have been coughing all day You have got to be exhausted. I said, I want you to go back to sleep. I said, and we'll, you know, get you up tomorrow, and you can watch TV. Because she was like a child. Mm -hmm. So I went back to my bedroom, and I just sat down on the bed, and I looked in on her. and She was asleep. I guess I sat there. It was 530 that morning. I was still sitting there, and I went in there, and I noticed something didn't look right about her. So I ran over to her bed and she was she was kind of a blue color. So I screamed for my husband to call 911, and I got I have an oximeter because I have breathing problems, and I checked her oxygen level and she had oxygen on. Um, it was 73. That is very very low. So now uh, the ambulance got here. I had the DNR on the refrigerator. And the first thing he said to me, is she not a hospital patient? I said, yes, she is, but I want you to help my mama. I had to stand here and argue with these men to help her. Well, how old is she? I said, it don't matter. I help my mother. So finally I looked at him and I tore the DNR up right in front of him. I said, I am revoking this DNR. You do whatever you can to help my mother. And they still were just standing there just looking at me. I got nose to nose. My nose was almost touching his. I said, I have lost everybody in my family. Help my mother now. And it just seemed like something clicked in that man's head. And he just started working with her. He was bagging her and it was breathing for her. I mean, it was just horrible. And the next morning, uh, they took her on to the hospital. By the time they got her there, her oxygen was in the low 60s. She was in total heart failure. And she did have a cold, but it caused her to have heart failure, too. So they admitted her to the hospital. And the nurse that was here that day, the day before, she actually went to the hospital. You know, because she said, I had no idea, you know. I believe they might have been covering their tracks. Mm-hmm. Because they you couldn't hear what was going on in her chest. And they put her in the hospital. She was there for, I think, nine days. I may be wrong on that. But whenever an elderly person is in a hospital, they usually put a catheter in them. So they did. And a lot of times when they do, and it, you know, for a few days, their bladder stops working. So when she came home, after about two days being home, her stomach started swelling, and she would say, my stomach hurts. And I noticed the swelling, and and she would say, I can't pee. I can't use the bathroom. And I would rub her stomach, and she would say, I'm peeing a little bit. I mean, I'm just using the words she used. Mm -hmm. And I would say, okay. So a couple of days later, the nurse came. I said, she is so swollen. I said, and she keeps saying she can't use the bathroom. And she said, "Um, well, I'll have to call the doctor. I said, does she need a catheter? She said, well, I'll have to go to the office and call the doctor and get an order. I said, can't you call the doctor from here? Don't you have the doctor's number? Because I could tell my mother was in, in pain. And she just whirled around, and, and she was getting really, you know, smart mouth with me. So I walked out and went to the kitchen, because I have a pretty short temper. And the CNA was here, too, and she ran in there. She looked at me. She said, Kathy, demand a catheter right now. Because the CNAs usually know more than the nurses do. So I walked back in there. I said, I want a catheter in my mother right now. She said, what? Well, I'll go to the office and get it, and I'll, I'll probably lose my job. I said, whatever, so be it, just get get a catheter. When she went to that office and brought that catheter back and put it in my mother, my mother had 1,300 cc's of urine in her. A normal bladder only holds 300. So, wow.
0: She, she was, was in, in, in big urine. trouble then if they had done nothing.
1: Right, her bladder would have burst. I mean, it was, right. she, it would have just burst, and they said that it was just so painful that she couldn't tell me that. She couldn't. All she would say is, "My stomach hurts." Mhm. So I let them go and got another hospital, and they came. I can't remember exactly what happened with them. Oh, I told you I'm. I get so confused with these hospices. There were so many. This is the anyway, one
0: where she didn't like your husband.
1: That's it. That's it. She didn't like my mm-hmm. husband. That's okay. right. Me and my husband had. When you're when you're caregiving and you, okay, me and my husband don't have any children. It's always been just us and our dogs. You know, you have a parent move in, you start caregiving. My husband had already had two strokes, and he was—he well, wasn't in good health, and neither am I. It wears on you. It wears on your marriage. I mean, it, it's a strain, but it's worth it. I agree. Um, let me clarify that.
0: I agree um, with all
1: of that. Yeah, the the hospice that came. Now, I like the nurse. She was an ER nurse on the weekends, and she was she was pretty compassionate. Cause I told her I could not give my mom any morphine. That would be the first thing I'd say to all of them. And they mm-hmm. they just knew not to even bring it up to me. So, me and my husband were arguing. I mean, we were really having a, we were having a really bad fuss when the CNA came in. And they're going to see those things when they're coming to your house three times a week. They're bound to hear something. So, we were into it. And she called me. She left, and, and about 4 o'clock that afternoon, she came at 8 in the morning, about 4 that afternoon, I was in my bedroom, and I, we live in a pretty big house. I had a phone on one side of the house, and I had one in my bedroom. The phone rang, and I picked up, and it was her. She said, I was just calling to check on you. I said, well, he's just being, being, you know, I forget how I put it, hard to deal with today. 'Cause like I said, he had had two strokes. His mind he has some cognitive impairments himself. I said, He's just being hard to deal with today and I just she said, Well, I didn't like the SOB. She called him a SOB when I when I first met him. And I didn't know he was on the other phone, he had picked up when I did. And he said, Well, if you don't like me, don't come back and that's all he said to her. The next morning, I get a call from her boss saying that they were dropping my mother because my husband threatened the CNA. I said, excuse me? I said, my husband had not threatened anybody. My husband wouldn't hurt a fly. She said, he threatened to shoot her. I said, no. So they came, brought the police with them, to sign the discharge papers the nurse that that I really liked was with the lady and the police and I just busted out crying because I was just I was a basket case at that time my husband was crying I was crying I didn't know what we were going to do I said that never happened and finally the nurse looked at me she said I don't believe it did either and we we kinda convinced them but it was too late, you know, they couldn't they couldn't keep coming out. So they helped me find another hospice. So that was that. The other hospice started coming. And my mama now by this time my mother was getting a lot weaker. Um and she was sick. No, this is when I got I got the other horses back. This I, is the bandages. The this is when she had the bed sore. No. no, 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 no. This this is right before that.
0: Okay. The one
1: that, that um, she kept talking about. She wanted her CNA back. She wanted her CNA back. And I thought, well, this is my chance. The one that let her catheter that didn't want to put the catheter in her. That's the ones that she loved. And the ones that killed my daddy. But I I, I wasn't going to kill my mother. Um, She wanted them back. And she kept, she would always say she wanted them back. So I said, well, here's my chance. I'll call and see if they will come back. So they said, yeah, we'll be glad to come back. But I said, I don't want that same nurse. Do you have another one? And they did. So they started coming back. Well, everything went smooth, you know, for, for a few months. And I kept noticing this knot in my mother's side. And I would show it to the nurse. It, sometimes it would be the size of a lemon. Sometimes it would be as almost as big as a grapefruit. But she did have, have a lot of problems, like I said earlier, with her bowels and go into the bathroom and they would say oh she's probably just constipated you need to use an enema or a suppository or something you know and get her cleaned out well I didn't know any better and and the nurse she started hurting real bad one weekend and the nurse came out that was my sister-in-law at one time she said Kathy I don't she said something's not right about this I said I know this knot's not going away now so she called the doctor and asked her could they get an ultrasound done? And the doctor said no. And the doctor came out about a week later and said she didn't see any reason to have an ultrasound done because you know he said because it's constipation. She said once they're there she my mama was bedridden by then. She said, Once they get like that, you know, this happens she said so We'll just start giving her, they gave her a liquid, um, I don't know what he, Like Ducalax? Like
0: Ducalax, probably?
1: Um, something like that, but it wasn't that. Um, lactulose is what it was called. Okay. It never it never worked, and I kept telling them it wasn't working. I would literally have to put on a glove and, and manually get it okay, out. Okay,
0: okay, okay.
1: TMI. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, I woke up one morning. I went in there. My mother was throwing up. And the more she threw up, I would go empty the pan and rinse it out. And by the time I would get it back, she would throw up again. And when I leaned down one time, I smelled it. I said, oh, my gosh. I called my husband in there. I said, she is literally throwing up feces. And I called the nurse. I said, she's throwing up throwing up her own poop. What do I do? Because I was going to try to play by the rules. And she said, um, let me call the doctor. And she called back. She said, Kathy. And this was my ex-sister-in-law. She said, she's calling her in something for nausea. Just kind of disgusted. I said, nah. I said, she's going to the hospital. So I revoked the DNR again. They said, well, if you send her to the hospital again, we can't, we're going to have to drop her and we'll pick her back up when she gets home. I said, that's fine. So I sent her to the hospital. My mother had an intestinal blockage. They had to send her from the hospital in our town because they can't do surgery and stuff like that to another town. They did surgery on her. She was there for like 13 days. And it was two days before Christmas. My mother was so happy about Christmas. She begged him, "Please let me go home for Christmas." So she came home on December the twenty-third, and I had already spoke with a social worker at the hospital, and they said she's already a hospital patient. I said, "Yes, ma'am." I said they just said to call them whenever y'all discharge her, and they would come right back out and pick her back up. So they made the arrangements with the same hospice, and they said, yeah, we'll meet her. Just let us know, and we'll be out there within a couple of hours after she gets back home. Well, they let her leave the hospital. Transport had to bring her home. When she got home, her oxygen level was in the 80s. She was in complete heart failure. They called me and tell me, well, we don't have a doctor on call. It was on Saturday. They said it's going to be Monday. Before we can have, we can come back out there and sign her up. I said, No, I said, You can't do this. She's an art failure. So I sat here all night. I knew what to do. I gave her extra uh, Lasix fluid medicine and I gave her a breathing treatment. And she went to sleep. So she was breathing all right. Her oxygen level came up. I called the social worker, and I don't know what in the world, you know, I think God just works things out in mysterious way sometimes. I called the hospital at like 5 o'clock in the morning crying. I said, I don't have a hospital, and I don't know what to do. And they said, hold up, we'll get you another one. So they send another one out here on Christmas Eve. He comes out here, and my mother's in, you know, the heart failure's still going on. And he looked, and he said, uh, she needs morphine. I said, I'm not giving my mother morphine. No. And he looked at his watch. He said, there's no drugstores open in Union here anyway tonight, are they? And I said, no. I said, not after 9 o'clock. We live in a very small town. Thank God, because we would have had to fight. Um, he said, well, let's give her another breathing treatment. By this time, I was literally holding her up in the bed. Helping her breathe, and we gave her more breathing treatments, and he doubled her Lasix. You know, cause you can't just double Lasix like that, losing fluid without enough potassium to cover it. And I learned all that. You know, you have to you have to give enough potassium so they don't lose all their electrolytes. Um. So we did all that, and she was okay. She um. She had had the surgery. I mean, she had staples that you could, but she never ever even acknowledged it that was the dementia um they started coming out and she got okay she celebrated Christmas and there was a nurse that kept coming out okay and I, and I forgot to say something every time you get a hospice um they want to take them off of all their medications except for what they want them to have, like my mother was on a medication for her thyroid, for congestive heart failure. She took a benzodiazepine for anxiety, and she took the Remeron at night for sleep, and it helped her concentrate. They only wanted to leave her on the... um, Oh, and LASIKs when needed. They only wanted to leave her on the anxiety medication and the sleep medicine. They wanted to all take the heart medicine... And the thyroid medicine away. I never would let them do it because I knew that would hasten her death too. Exactly. And they will take they will take medications in a, in a heartbeat. I would not let them do it. None of them. But this time, um, like I said, she was she was getting a lot worse. I mean, she was eighty seven, eighty six years old, eighty seven, and went through that major surgery. A blockage is a major surgery.
0: Exactly.
1: So this nurse was coming out. Like I said, they. she had had this heart failure, and she ran out of it. It's called Carvedalol. It's for heart failure. Um, she ran out of it, and I said, she needs her medication. It was on a Thursday. She said, I'll call it in, and you can pick it up at the pharmacy this afternoon. Well, I called. It wasn't there. And my mother had to take it twice a day. So, I said, well, maybe she forgot. I called the office the next morning. Oh, okay. We'll get the message to her. No medicine. My mother laid here until Tuesday without her heart medication. Wow. And I was slower. That's another one out the door. I said, you know, no. So, I called another one. I always... You always line another one up before you let the other one go because you don't want to go without their needed medications because once they're on hospice and they're not able to go to the doctor and they're on these medications, that there's no way they can get them. So they'll be stuck. But always, you know, if, if you want to change hospice companies, always have another one lined up before you fire the, the other company. And usually right. the new one... The new hospice company will take care of it, their sales, so you don't have to deal with it.
0: And if I can say at this point, the reason they do this is because it's money. I mean, they weren't jumping in there because they're all concerned about Mary, Kathy's mom. They are making money. It's a profit. So if one hospice loses the patient and another hospice is gaining them, then that's all good for them. And Because they're all making this money as the time is progressing, and that's what it's about. And the medication that you just said, some hospitals, I've talked to people, and they say that their loved one continued the regular medication. Other people said, no, they took, like they did with your mom, that they just took Not. them off of their medication. If you take somebody off of blood pressure medicine, heart medicine, Kidney medicine, anything that they're taking like that, if you take them off of that, you are going to hasten their death because they exactly. need that to survive. And it's the um, guest that I had a couple of weeks ago, Sarah Bushner, which she discussed the difference between palliative care and hospice care. Palliative, they continue to treat you. When you're in right. hospice, chances are they're going to stop the medication, and unless You're like Kathy where you realize that and you argue and say, oh, no, you're not. And you as the patient or as the loved one of the patient have a right to be part of the plan. You have a right to say, no, you're not giving that medication, and no, you aren't taking that away. And if they don't listen to you, you do what Kathy did, and you line up another hospice facility that will listen to you. Because as you're hearing from Kathy, they were all different. But she had to be on top of it the entire time to make sure that her mom's being treated correctly. So exactly. go ahead, Kathy. I, I think you're at the like part where said, she had bed sores.
1: Yeah, but like you said, it's a money thing. And, and, and I, I came to believe that as far as the medication is concerned, they're they're much needed medications like the heart medicines and stuff. See, hospice is paying for these things, and they want to cut the cost as much as they can. So they're gonna cut medicines as much as they can. They right. want you on their cocktail. That's the bottom line. So anyway, right. um, I fired them, and I got another one. My mother was was getting a lot weaker than the surgery did a number on her. And I knew it, you know, you know in your heart. But still, I wasn't going to let her um, be killed, be murdered. Right. So this house just started coming, and she had uh, developed bed sores. And I'm going to tell you, she had, like, a little red place on her hip. And the next day, it was a big gaping hole. That's how fast it happened. Because her body wasn't getting enough protein but she couldn't eat right after that surgery. And she wasn't eating, you know, full meals like normal. And I always gave her protein shakes in the morning, but that wasn't good enough. She wasn't eating a lot of meat. She wasn't She wasn't getting enough vitamins and nutrients just to sustain her, you know. So she started getting bed sores, and her skin was breaking down. And these people were coming out, you know, and they were, they were they were sending these bandages, um, like with, like a big band-aid, you know, with the brown on one side with the sticky all around it. And they were really nice bandages. Yeah. And it got so bad she got one on the on, on another hip and then on her tailbone. And one down the side of her leg. And I turned her every two hours. I did everything right. But sometimes you just can't stop bed sores. You can't do it because their bodies, their skin's just breaking down. And um, so every time I would look at her bed and they would be draining, just the bandage would be wet, it would come off, and I would change it. Well, they send the head nurse down here. Okay, my sister-in-law, the one that worked for the other hospice, had left that company and went with this company, thank God. So one day she came in and she said, The nurse is with me. She needs to talk to you, her boss. They said I was using too many bandages. They were showing me the correct way to put the bandages on. I already knew how to put a bandage on. The nurse had already showed me. It just kept getting worse and worse, and they were arguing. I said, I'm not going to let my mother lay here. These sores smell. If you don't change them and clean them out, they smell. And when my mother is sitting laying here asking me, "Why do I smell like this?" She couldn't feel the bed sores because they get to a certain point. They hurt in the beginning, but when they get to stage four, they can't feel them. So she's got well, she's got one stage four and three stage threes. So she couldn't feel a lot of pain, but but they were, they were infected. So she bounced in here. I mean, she stomped through my house like she owned the place. And she told me, you know, she, she was showing the, uh, my ex-sister-in-law, she was showing her how she wanted the bandages changed. And she looked at me. She said, you cannot change these bandages anymore. She said, whenever a bandage needs to be changed, you need to call a nurse. I said, you mean to tell me every time this bandage needs to be changed, I have to call a nurse and wait two to three hours for them to come out here with her bed wet, you know, and her smelling. I can't change my own mother's bandage. The bottom line was, she said, well, these bandages cost $200 a box. I said, get some cheaper ones. I even looked online at medical supply places. I said, I found some a lot cheaper than that. So we got into it. So one day, my, my sister in law came out and I said, and I called her. Well, I called her one day and I said, I need the bandages change. She said, You go ahead and do it. She said, You know what you're doing. She said, I'll tell them I told you to do it. I said, Okay, because they thought it was just crazy. So and she came out here maybe a week later and she said, Kathy. I was crying. I said, I don't know what to do. These things aren't getting any better. And I called that head nurse and do you know what she said to me? She said to me, get a wet washcloth and put on it. I said, I will not do it. That is not sterile. I said, they're already infected. I said, that'll kill her. Well, putting moisture on it. Yeah, putting moisture on it like that.
0: I don't think that's good, yeah. So, no, you um, have to keep
1: them clean and dry.
0: Right, and so you started and, using regular gauze. Um, can Can I get you to go ahead and go to the next one because we're we've got twelve minutes, and I want you to be able to finish your story. So,
1: well, I did revoke hospital. Sent to the hospital with bed sores, and they got them, got them pretty much, you know, under control. So the next time she came out,
0: well, at that time you said she was given five pints of blood.
1: Yes, they had to give her five five units of blood. Right. Her thyroid was through the roof. They they doubled, doubled her thyroid medicine. And the next houses that came out did not even want to call in any more thyroid medicine. I said, yes, you are. They did take her off of her blood pressure medicine because it was dropping too low. I did go along with that because I saw it with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I went through two more, but The the next to the last one were no better. They wanted to give her morphine. I said no, and I found another one. And they were here until I knew she was finally, I knew she was dying. She had stopped eating. She didn't eat for six, no, she didn't eat for, yeah, she went without food for 10 days. And she went without water for six days. So I knew my mother was dying. Nobody can live like that.
0: Mm-mm. No, so they can't. finally
1: I had to, she had been on pain medication, pretty strong pain medication, which she was used to because she had been taking it way before office. And she was on medication that if she couldn't, if her body didn't get it, she would have went into withdrawal. So I was crushing her medicine, putting it in a syringe and putting it in her mouth. Well, finally, now this was in the days when she wasn't eating or drinking. It just ran out the other side of her mouth. And I knew then that something had to be done because she couldn't. Her body would have uh, went into withdrawals if she didn't have something. So I did go into the comfort kit, and I would give her a drop. And I mean a pin-sized drop of morphine just to keep her from going into withdrawals. And right. at the end, you know, she, she died, but they had showed me how to change her catheter. And the night that she died, um, the nurse came in here. And the last thing my mama hated that catheter, and I knew how to change it. And I told the nurse, I said, I want to take that out. I just wanted it out of my mother, and I wanted to be the one to take it out. I was hands-on the whole time. She said, No, I can't let you do that. I said, Oh, you can let me change it when you don't have a nurse to come out here. But now that my mother's gone, that she can't even fill a thing, you can't even let me take it out. Because she hated it. And she said, Well,
0: I can, I've never had one, but I would imagine it would be very uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things they do, you know, immediately because it makes it easier on the staff because they don't have to come and help them get up. Right. They don't have to change a bedpan. They, I think that is just part of their MO to go in. They start drugging them. They put a catheter in, and the patient lays there. They come in, and they look to see how much urine there is and if it's getting very concentrated because they're not getting any fluids, and they know they're going to die. They check their toes. They check their fingers. They look for blue, and yeah. it's, you know, For us, looking at that, because we don't really know until we've watched it and then we're in total shock, then you think that they care. They're coming in there and they're checking on your parent, and you think it's because they care. No, it isn't. They're waiting to see, oh, how long is it going to be before this person dies so we can roll them out and bring in another body. Now, in your mom's case, she was in the home, but... They would have done that if she was in a facility too. You were smart enough that you you know you resisted that and you protected your mom. And I'm so proud of you that you did that, Kathy. Because otherwise, your your mom would have died probably a year earlier
1: or two years earlier, probably sooner than that.
0: Right. So you two years earlier. But the point is that you saw what what happened with your dad. You were able to protect your mom. Everybody, please hear this. You have the right to first refuse hospice. You do not have to put your loved one in hospice. And if they are not actively dying, if they do not have a disease that cannot be treated either with medication or procedures as in dialysis, then there is no need to put your loved one into hospice. But today, hospice, if your loved one has dementia, if they can't feed or dress themselves, or if they're incontinent, if they have congestive heart failure or COPD, they qualify. They will put them in there. They will stop giving them their regular medication. They will start giving them this toxic drug cocktail that I have told you about, which has horrible, horrible side effects from all of these drugs. They will continue to give them more drugs till they cannot swallow. They will not be able to eat anything. They will not be able to drink anything, and they will die a horrible, horrible death. Hospice yeah. is not the compassionate place to put your loved one. There are alternatives. Right. can is Yeah, and you've pointed those out that you can switch them around, but you knew that your mom, you know, was at some point going to die. She, she was not going to get any better. But throughout right. it all, you made sure that she got proper care. Now, Right. She went three over. Point. Say again.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry. The the, the and the, and another thing is they will tell you that you have to sign a DNR a do not resuscitate order. No, you do not. You Absolutely do not. Absolutely correct. Have to sign that. So don't let don't ever let anybody make you sign something that you you're not comfortable signing because I would have to tear it up and revoke it every time I send her to the hospital. And then I found out, I think through a uh, hospital social worker, you do not have to sign a do not resuscitate.
0: Okay, Absolutely she was correct. Up to
1: the for dementia, it was a dementia diagnosis only, and you know uh, all those other things went wrong. That was beside the point. You know, I got her help. I knew she was terminal with dementia, but that don't mean you're dying if you have dementia.
0: Well, I mean, it doesn't mean they know that on this particular date that you are, and if you sign up for hospice, um, chances are, unless you're like Kathy and you stay right on top of it, that they're going to die before six months goes out. And if they are problematic, meaning that they require more assistance because they have bad sores, because they have to go to the hospital a couple of times, they're they're, they're not going to want a patient like that. If they have a patient that isn't, really super ill and doesn't give them any trouble and they don't have to worry about bed sores or going to the hospital, then, you know, it's not going to affect them. They're going to keep that person there unless they need the bed or unless they need the slot or unless they're bumping up against that aggregate cap that is put into place, which this year is a little over um, $30,000. But they're going to rotate. They're going to move them out and move somebody else in because it is about – money. That is what this is. And this year, they will be pushing again with the Pachetta, the Palliative um, Training and Care Act, and they will be pushing to get that out there so that they can create more hospices. And like Kathy said, she lives in a small area. She went through nine different hospices, and she lives in a small area. How many hospices? Organizations, do you think are in your area? And if you're in the hospital a couple of times, they're going to want to come in. They don't want you coming in for broken bones or COPD or congestive heart failure, and they are going to want to convince you that you need to go under hospice care. You do not. You do not have to enroll your person. And if you have to because they do meet criteria as in actively dying, you are still in control and you call the shots, but you must know the information. And again, org is a good place to go. Every state has a right-to-life facility. The two Facebook group that I mentioned, Voices for Seniors, Murdered by Hospice, the book by Michelle Young-Doers, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, these are places you can go and get information. Um, Also, on Marty's talk show radio, we have the information. You can contact me, Joiner, 2018 at gmail.com if you have a story to tell or if you need some assistance and need me to direct you to a place that can help you. So, Kathy, I appreciate you coming on tonight and sharing your truth with us and being strong enough to tell the story, to warn other people, because as you and I have talked about, that's what your goal is, too, is to make sure people know the truth and that it doesn't happen to them like it has to us. Is there anything else that you want to add?
1: I'm sorry. Um, Just know that um, these people don't care about you. And they don't care about your family or your loved one. They don't care. They're there to make money. And they play on you at the worst time of your life. And anybody that deals with death, like these hospice workers do, they're not, they're not compassionate. They're heartless. They can smile in your face and then go right on to the next victim.
0: That's absolutely if you can't true. At, at
1: all possible, just stay away from them. Right. The palliative care. Palliative care will work with the doctor, your doctor, and they will get your medication. I mean, sometimes it, you have to have them, but you have to advocate for your loved one. You have to.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you do are in a situation where you have signed a DNR at your doctor's office or at the hospital, get them to show it to you, tear it up. A DNR means don't do anything for me. Don't give me anything. It does not mean if I'm a vegetable, don't bring me back to life. If I'm going to live, right. that is not what a DNR means. A DNR is if anything happens, I don't want you to give me, you know, a feeding tube. I don't want you to resuscitate me. Don't, you don't have to give me fluids. Nothing. Do not sign a DNR. It used to be safe to do. It is not. And, again, on HaloVoice.org, they have sample medical power of attorney that you can use so that it can help you. So you need to worry about that, take care of that. Exactly. So with that, I appreciate everybody um, calling in tonight and listening to Kathy's story. And we will be back in a couple of weeks. And thank you very much, Kathy, for you coming in and telling your Thanks story. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank good you. night, everybody. Have a good evening. Good night. Good night.